Hi all, Matthew and I are here again for another Clean Tech Talk podcast where we talk about the latest, hottest trends in solar energy, electric vehicles, wind energy, and energy efficiency. This week, we're talking about the big extension of the solar and wind federal tax credits in the United States, Tesla Model X signature series vehicles beginning delivery, and Faraday Future and what it's got in store. So to kick things off, we'll talk about the tax credits. I guess I'll start with that one. Obviously, it's been a big concern for the solar and wind industry the past couple of years, whether or not the tax credits would get extended again because they greatly help the industries to be more, even more cost competitive and install even more capacity. So I think there's a lot of pessimism about the extension of the solar tax credit and wind tax credit. And all of a sudden, we got word of a likely five-year extension, which I think was really surprising for most of us who follow the industry because there's so much pessimism about these. So I think it's a, a great big overall win. Of course, there were some, quote, poison pills in the huge, gigantic budget bill. But, you know, I don't think that could have been avoided given the current Congress and how crazy they are. So I think overall, it's a it's a great win for progressives in general and for the renewable energy industries, the wind industries. Matthew, what's your take? Thanks, Zachary. I agree. The spending bill, the $1.1 trillion spending bill, does have fantastic news for renewables, even if there is a little bit of a giveaway to the oil sector there. The 30% investment tax credit will be extended for three years, then ramped down to 10% in 2022. And then it will continue until eternity for everyone except homeowner installed, sorry, homeowner owned residential installations, meaning that residential installations owned by third parties will still receive a 10% investment tax credit. And the 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour production tax credit for wind will be extended next year, then drop 20% a year through 2020 or so. These credits last for 10 years of production, so that's it's a great stability for wind farm developers. Some of the other renewable energy sectors got a one-year production tax credit extension as well. And uh, unfortunately, the oil sector got the ability to export non-refined oil. It's something that the big oil companies have wanted for a long time because, you know, if you have a refinery not fully used in you know, Singapore, maybe elsewhere in Asia or even South America, then it's a whole lot easier and cheaper to export raw oil from one raw crude from one jurisdiction to that other jurisdiction, which might even have you know more lenient environmental laws, labor costs, and so on and so forth. That said, it, I think basically this, this will ensure that the renewable sector becomes big enough to be an 800-pound gorilla in the room when it comes to lobbying. You know, the solar industry already employs twice as many people as coal. And you know, Green Tech Media had an estimate out that this would spur $40 billion of investment in the solar sector alone in the next five years, 25 additional gigawatts. And the wind sector had been screaming for many years that they wanted a sort of a long-term policy framework to work with as opposed to Yes, the tax credit's here this year. No, it's not next year. Then the next year, oh, hey, it's back for one year only. So this should also help provide stability to the wind sector, which is already the cheapest form of electricity, new electricity, incremental electricity to come online. So I think it's fantastic news. And even though part of me is disappointed, there had to be a bit of a giveaway to the fossil fuel sector with the oil there. It's the the 99% of the good stuff totally outweighs the 1% of the uh, the better from my perspective. Um, Kyle, what's your take? 
Yeah, I think very similar in terms of the overall feel of it. I mean, overall, it is a big win for renewables, and that's that's definitely exciting for me. The production tax credit for solar having to step down across the next couple of years is it's more natural. There was hard cutoff in the industry with the 30% tax credit there ending so abruptly at the end of 2016. And so this feels like a more natural transition, but I, I really wasn't worried about that because we have had such big gains and, and such large reductions in primarily solar cell and panel pricing um, over the last, I would say, four years specifically. So I wasn't worried about it. And I think on top of that, the industry knew from from a solar perspective, the solar industry knew that that was coming in, in the U.S. And so they'd been planning for that. I, I still feel there are a lot of soft savings, I think. So in terms of the engineering and sales costs in the U.S. are a lot higher than other regions. Um, and I think some of that is driven by the permitting. And so I think we still need some government support uh, from a permitting standpoint and not just from an incentive and tax credit standpoint. But yeah, I think this feels more natural, but I, I personally wasn't too worried about the impact that that cutoff was going to have because it has been so long in the making. So now that it is tapered down, it feels more natural. A couple things were, were funny to me, the, the solar and wind stocks jumping on the news. I think there was and there is a lot of demand that's been kind of stuffed up into 2016. And so I would say, if anything, I view this as something that's going to dilute that kind of backlog in 2016 across a couple more years. Some people will kind of delay their, their installation a few more years or uh, reconsider the option, wait for prices to drop further. So I would say for the near term, I would even expect orders in production forecasts to drop for, for solar specifically. For wind, I do think it provides some continuity, but it's just interesting. The GTM research forecast for solar, you know, expecting the tax credits to go away was, was you know, very clearly like strong growth and then a big drop off and then continued like stepwise growth, you know, from year to year. Strong growth, of course, but like dropped from to another level. So I, I think it's, it's strong overall. But we have had a lot of discussion and Jigger Shaw actually years ago brought up the idea that, that solar shouldn't even have any subsidies because he thought it could compete without subsidy. And then there's no argument of, about the subsidies and there's no and the, the industry itself is forced to, to bring the cost down more quickly. I think without a doubt the subsidies help bring the cost down more. But whether or not they're really that necessary anymore is, is sort of up for debate. I mean, as we saw, the, the average price of utility-scale solar this last year was $0.05 cents a kilowatt hour. That's well below fossils or nuclear in most cases. Natural gas can hit that level. Wind, it's like 3 to $0.04. Cents, so it's, again, lower. So I, I think they're competitive anyway, and we're seeing that with the percentage of capacity that's renewables. But um, giving them this boost for another few years just really gives them a huge advantage. I mean, they just have much greater cost competitiveness than fossil fuels or nuclear, I think. And then by the time these phase out, it's like I, I don't see how fossil fuels or nuclear could, could come close to them. So I, I think it's just it's really exciting, a smoother transition to renewables, I think, than it w might have been with the boom-bust cycle. Do you guys have any more final thoughts? On the topic of Ajigar Shah, and we'd mentioned him last week with his note to Bill Gates and others explaining that we need deployment instead of development, even though I know he uh, he does think that, or he does, you know, 
running the numbers. You know, renewables do definitely compete on their own without subsidies, without carbon prices even. I think he might have a softer take on this, a more generous take on this uh, extension if he views it in the context that this will actually assist with you know, increased deployment, which will just make the renewable sector even stronger. I can see the argument that if you take away the subsidies, then no one can complain that renewables are subsidies-based. Uh, at the same time, my, my personal take is that given all the benefits that the fossil sector has enjoyed for, well, I guess at least a century now, it's it's kind of tying one hand behind your back not to have renewables be able to access the kinds, the same kind of favoritism, even if it's just to, to level the playing field. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I haven't heard Jigger's take on that for years, so I don't know if his opinion has changed. Kyle? Yeah, for me, I think the uh, the externalities is really the key there, like you mentioned, Matthew. And I think really it's not accurate to call it a subsidy, but the best way to level the playing field is really a, a carbon tax across the board. And that really captures all of those externalities. And at that point, I mean, it's obvious that we would not need a subsidy for renewables like we're seeing with this this current uh, extension. So I would still advocate a carbon tax over these subsidies, but I do agree that this will kind of cement the foundation for solar and, and other renewables into the future. So, yeah, I've always argued, I mean, I, I think externalities are a subsidy. So the externalities we pay for fossil fuels, burning fossil fuels, we're subsidizing these industries because we're paying for this extra cost in healthcare bills instead. So I think I think it is a subsidy, a very, you know, indirect or a unique kind of one. But but those on top of historical subsidies for fossil fuels and nuclear, which have been many times greater than renewables, make any argument against renewable subsidies pretty absurd in my opinion. So hopefully we're beyond that point and it won't even matter in five years. <laughs> but let's jump on to the Model X. Kyle, you broke, I think, the biggest news regarding that. Yeah, I'm excited about what's going on with the X. So I, I just happened to be in a discussion with an insider with uh, Tesla, and we were talking about um, a Model S uh, that I'm looking to buy here in the next couple couple days, hoping to lock that in and, and go pick it up, hopefully right at the beginning of the new year in preparation for CES, actually. And it just happened to come up that the specific verbatim I captured was that every other car off the line is a Model X. And so that's just that's just huge showing that the Model X production has fully ramped up. Um, I think in the comments of that article, we got into some of the details about what every other car off the line means, if that's, you know, every other car, so 50% of the total production leaving the factory, if that's one of the full production lines is producing 50% Model Xs, if there are indeed two, and it sounded like there were actual two parallel production lines that kind of merge for the final inspection and assembly. And so it would... Yeah, they added they added the second line just uh, recently, but basically it's not like there are two completely separate lines. It's like they, they separate for a bit and then they merged for the end for the end line. So I think the end line is, is, is both, both vehicles coming off of one line. Yeah, so that... That's very exciting, and that that is very common in manufacturing. I mean, you really look for your uh, your bottlenecks, and if there's no bottleneck downstream, it, it makes total sense to merge those two streams. So that that feels natural to me. It feels like a good fit, and it really got me pumped up about the Model X. I mean, it's here. We're producing them. We uh, Tesla is producing them in mass at, at actual production quantities, and then I think with the news over the weekend of the first couple signature 
deliveries happening. I mean, it really just kicks out into high gear. I think the excitement is building and yeah, I'm, I'm getting pumped about this. Matt, do you want to jump into that one? Sure. Yeah, this was a uh, fantastic news. I thought it was, I guess it'll be very interesting to try to infer and deduce what the, um, what the Model X ramp up is like. It sounds like they've been able to more or less, you know, switch it on, turn it on on a dime. Zachary, I think, had done a little piece uh, a little while back comparing the Model S production ramp-up to the Ford Model T ramp-up from about 100 years back. And so it'd be very uh, cool to see the Model S, sorry, the Model X ramp-up uh, substantially more quickly. And so, yeah, that is it is fantastic news. And it was it was very cool that uh, Clean Technica and that you and specifically, Kyle, were able to break that new information. Uh, Zachary? I forgot about that story until you brought it up, but I love that one because it showed, I think Bloomberg Bloomberg started that one, but it basically showed that Model T production ramp-up was, was closely matching Tesla ramp-up. And we brought that into the discussion, or someone else brought that up in the discussion under that article. Someone was saying that it even faced very similar, you know, pushback from the mainstream with people saying, you know, all oh, this is a too expensive for the mainstream. It was like, you know, not the initial Model T's were not at all affordable. That it didn't have enough range. There weren't enough gas stations to support it. So they they faced like basically the same kind of challenges. And someone was saying that, you know, that Elon has been specific about, he thought he remembered Elon being specific about following the Ford model. So it seems to be going well, seems to be following along, and it seems, seems to be just about as disruptive. But in general, it's just exciting to see that Tesla has gotten past these these big hurdles with production. And even though production might not match deliveries, so we although we're seeing hundreds of X's, it seems, being produced in a week, that might not translate into hundreds of them being delivered before the new year because Tesla is being apparently very cautious to make sure everything is correct, everything is done right before they really ramp up which obviously makes a lot of sense to, to keep potential problems uh, limited, like we sort of discussed last last week. Yeah, so it's really exciting to see production ramping up, but that doesn't necessarily mean that deliveries are ramping up, uh, are going to hit hundreds or a thousand uh, before the end of the year, because Tesla is being apparently very cautious with, with uh, everything, quality control, and making sure that everything is perfect. Uh, before they really ramp up uh, deliveries. So, you know, Tesla might miss its its guidance. We'll see. But at any rate, it looks like they've got it's gotten past the, the major hurdles and production is there and everything is going well. And the, the delivered Xs just look superb. They look really, really stunning. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. I'm, I'm thrilled by that. And I agree with the cautious approach. I mean, it, it would be just a tragedy to have a repeat of what they're seeing with the the Model S or what they what they saw in the early deliveries, um, as you mentioned. Um, so I think that is the, the right approach, and especially with the X being a more technically complex vehicle with the Falcon Wing doors. I mean, those things are a marvel. But um, because, I mean, they are so graceful, but that that is all underpinned by just crazy engineering complexity, all the sensors, all the nuances of how they work. I mean, that could go wrong in any number of ways. So I'm, I'm similarly thankful for the cautious approach. I actually talked to the, the showroom here locally in California that I visited yesterday. 
um, about the X trying to pry out some more news about whether they might receive some Model Xs, and they just mentioned that they had kind of seen an X go by. I guess there was a, um, a delivery headed south for a delivery, presumably in Los Angeles. So they are seeing them move through. There was there was only one, so I guess it's not the masses that we're expecting from from the north where the factory is. But it was exciting that they'd seen one go by. I mean, they were really excited to to get those coming through, and it was fun. So I, instead, I just drove one of the seventy seventy Ds with autopilot um, and tried that out. But that'll be a, a story for another week. And I think with the excitement just building, I mean, it's it's really really neat to see this going on. As a side note, it was very amusing to see in, in the art, one of the articles that one of the first recipients of a Model X found out about it through social media, as opposed to an officially company you know, communication, simply because of the excitement and enthusiasm surrounding this, uh, this new product. Yeah, well, there's a lot of craziness on the Tesla Motors Club forum with people, you know, th- thousands of reservation holders, you know, trying to find out any information they can. And basically, that's that's the first place a lot of people are finding information that's leaked from others. So that, yeah, this was a a Model X signature series that was shipped from from California to New York, and the the lady saw the picture of the X on the forum before she realized it had arrived there. But then she went by the service center, she got to look at it, and she saw another one there as well at that time. But yeah, so the last story is a Faraday future, which is. Well, I'll let Kyle Kyle do some really in-depth pieces on it. So, Kyle, take it away. Yeah, so Faraday Future is the uh, the new, they're calling it a California EV startup. I'm kind of trying to build on the excitement behind like Fisker and Tesla up in the north. They started out in California and there was a lot of mystery and kind of uh, speculation around what was going on and what they were doing and who was backing them. After quite a bit of, of digging, and I think there was a video tour that we covered from their uh, California office, they actually announced just recently that they're going to be opening a factory in Vegas, and they're calling it a $1 billion EV factory. There was a little bit of weird wording in kind of that announcement, which made me kind of believe that it, w- it might be just an assembly point. Faraday is actually backed by a large kind of media mogul in in China. And so he's got this media empire called Lei TV and really built his fortune and his expertise on developing media content delivery platforms. And so he, he took a, a large chunk of that uh, money that he's earned there, rolled it into Faraday, and now um, obviously expanding that into the, the factory in Nevada. So it's a huge announcement, uh, bringing that to Nevada. They just finalized, actually, I think over the weekend, the incentive package there. So it's like $335 million. But it's really neat to see kind of the West Coast becoming a hub for electrification and, and electric vehicles. And we've got the Gigafactory in northern Nevada. Now the Faraday Future Factory, which is going to be a tongue twister, popping up just 20 miles outside of uh, Las Vegas. And uh, the excitement just continues to build for that area. Matthew? Yeah, just riffing on the selection of Nevada, there are a lot of advantages that Nevada offers, perhaps most significantly that I'm sure the real estate for employees who want to move there would be a lot less expensive than various places in California. 
evidently one of the reasons that Toyota chose to retreat from California and move its American headquarters to Plano, Texas, was real estate costs, which came out of the blue. But I can see that Nevada would have some very strong advantages there. There's also the plentiful uh, sun that uh, Nevada gets. So uh, as one can see in the mock-ups of the Faraday factory, they also are following the all solar panels on all of the roof model that uh, the Gigafactory has pioneered or at least popularized. And Nevada has, uh, in addition, it does have some uh, old lithium mines, lithium resources, and uh, good rail links to California to a, a big primary market. So there are many reasons for thinking that Nevada can become, I guess Vegas more broadly, can become the Detroit of the electric vehicle sector in the state, as much as Detroit itself was in prime position in part because of its nearness to Chicago and all the transportation routes and hubs that Chicago had uh, you know, 100 years ago, which uh, in the in the era preceding airlines. So it'd be interesting to see if perhaps next year we see yet another uh, startup uh, decide that Nevada is the place to be, because that would offer us a big three electric hub in Nevada, as opposed to the sort of big three American uh, combustion hub, as it were, in Detroit. Uh, Zachary, what's your yeah. take? Yeah, that could be a, a real milestone in the transition from uh, one generation of vehicles to the next. Um, well, I'm really curious to see what this vehicle actually ends up being because it's been it's still quite mysterious, but it's supposed to be a lot more connected and supposed to be extremely innovative. So I'm curious to see how how innovative it is, how connected it is, it is and how much that's really useful rather than just like some bling bling, whatever. So I'm really eager to see the reveal in the Consumer Electronics Show in, in Vegas. And I'm happy Kyle will be there covering it from the ground. And it looks, I mean, this the, the guy behind it all looks very successful. He's a, he's a really passionate young IT tech entrepreneur who's had a lot of success. So I, I see potential there for it to be successful. I think they've brought in a lot of important and really well-qualified people. On the other hand, of course, the, the degree to which they're copying Tesla is very striking. <laughs> uh, it's just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Kyle pointed out even some, the tweet announcing the factory was like very similar in very specific ways to Elon Musk's tweet announcing the factory in Nevada, the Gigafactory in Nevada. So on the one hand, you know, I'm afraid of it being too much of a copycat company. But on the other hand, you know, Tesla's the only car startup in like 100 years or something to, to be successful. So maybe best is to, to try to follow some good examples uh, and then build off of that with your own innovative ideas. But that's it. Um, uh, Kyle, I'm sure you have more thoughts on it now. <laughs> no, I, I agree um, on, on a lot of those points you brought up, Zach. I mean, the I, I think a lot of the, the ways they're copying Tesla are just kind of following the innovation. And so... It feels odd, but as I'm thinking about it and processing it, it does make sense. I mean, Silicon Valley, California, that's that's the hub for technology. And, and cars have really evolved into more of tech machines with electric vehicles um, than just your typical gas car to get you from place to place. So it's more of the, the experience in the car and more of the interaction with the car, like we're seeing with Tesla and the large 17-inch vertical touchscreen being front and center, replacing all of the manual knobs. I mean, that is a that's a an interactive, engaging experience. Even the move towards autopilot removes the driver from kind of the direct interaction with 
the the road and with the car, which some I think some gearheads will will really dislike. But at the same time, I mean, it gives you the freedom and the ability to to enjoy the experience and to interact with the media and maybe use that touchscreen or watch a movie, depending on how that evolves over the next five or ten years. So, I think this this approach that Faraday Future here is taking with their experience that they're they're trying to sell in the new car, it feels like the natural evolution of that idea. I think the challenge is really the autonomous vehicle technology and delivery there combined with the electric vehicles. I mean, it's easy to say we're copying Tesla. We've got their patents. We have the same strategic locations. But at the same time, Tesla wasn't built in a, in a day. It's been 12 years in the making now. And uh, there's a lot of learnings and pain and blood that's been shed over those learnings and that's gone into the cars that they're making today in the tens of thousands. So I think that's the real challenge that they're going to have to muscle through is building the car, delivering the car, and automation of the the driving. Those are no small challenges. And um, I think the technology is out there, but it's still yet to be proven on the road. So that's that's what I see as the big barriers for Faraday. And yeah, I, I can't wait to see what they deliver with this new engaging experience. Uh, Matthew, you want to close this topic out? Sure. I guess Faraday is, uh, represents one extension in the, the automotive industry's life, I suppose, in that uh, while Tesla was founded by a former software executive, Faraday Future is now chaired by a current sort of software slash information technology executive, Elon Musk, of course, having decided after PayPal to uh, split his uh, his uh, his fortune and his efforts between uh, SpaceX, SolarCity, and Tesla itself. Jia Yuteng is uh, currently at, uh, as you mentioned, at the Le TV, and they are kind of a Netflix, but vertically integrated kind of a Netflix. And so it would be interesting if there are hints of what Apple might be coming out with its rumored uh, Apple car in terms of the approach that Faraday Future might be taking to very closely integrate the information space in the vehicle. Zachary, perhaps I'll turn it to you to close. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of rumor or speculation that Faraday Future might be a front for Apple. I don't see that as the case, but they might end up working together. But uh, but I agree, uh, Kyle, it's really manufacturing cars is not easy. And uh, Tesla's had, as we discussed at length last episode, you know, Tesla's had a lot of difficulty learning this skill it's, it's a really complicated business so i, th- I don't think anyone anyone is going to give faraday future a free pass until it really has a product being delivered at scale and and has shown that it can do this but there's definitely hope it's definitely one of the one of the companies that we have i think more hope for given who's behind it so it's exciting but we, yeah we'll see what we have from them i'm sure we'll talk about them in january don't know what we'll talk about next week. We'll have to you have to check in to hear Kyle, Matthew, and I ramble about the most interesting clean tech news in our eyes next week and get your electric fix 